And every summer we've said we want to do a series on how to have better conversations. And the reason this is so important to me and, and, and for us as a community is that I believe one of the problems that we have as a society is our inability to have substantial, meaningful conversation. It seems like our conversational IQ has gone down decade after decade after decade, and it seems like we need help. And so the question is, how does the church of Jesus Christ fit into this picture of helping us recover this lost art of great conversation? I think we need to lead the way because we are one of the only places left in our society where weekly we're coming together and we're having big conversation. Now the problem is if we leave it in this room, if this is the only place that we do this, and we don't go outside of these walls and uh, bring our friends, our family, our neighbors along in this dialogue, then we will, I think, be letting down God. He wants us to be the people that start these kinds of conversation. I don't know how to say it any blunter than that. Let's not let down God. So the question is, then how do we become better at conversation? Well, we need to talk about it. We need to talk about it, and then we need to practice it. And then we talk about it some more, and we practice it. So we've said every summer we're going to do a series on better conversations, and there's lots of things we can talk about that will help us have better conversation. And this summer we're talking about the art of persuasion. The art of persuasion, which basically means this. We should not speak about things, particularly the things of God, unless we speak with passion in order to move people. It's not just an intellectual exercise to speak about God. It's a personal exercise. It'd be like me talking about my wife in textbook format. She's my wife, and I love her. And she has sacrificed for me, and I sacrificed for her. And so when I speak about her, it should move you. It should be the same way when we speak about God. Now, the other reason why this art of persuasion is so important, um, I'll read this quote from Oz Guinness, which Oz wrote a book that inspired uh, a lot of what we're talking about this week, a book called Fool's Talk, if you'd like to read it on your own. But he said this. He said, Almost all of our witnessing and Christian communication assumes that people are open to what we have to say, or at least interested, if not in need of what we are saying. Yet most people today quite simply are not open, not interested, not needy, and in much of the advanced modern world, fewer people are open today and even, than even a generation ago. Indeed, many are hostile, and their hostility is greater than the Western church has faced for centuries. Does that make sense? And when people are not open, the question is, well, then do we not talk about the things that mean the most to us? The answer should be no. We should still talk about it, but our speech and the way we live our life should be to persuade them to become open. Persuade them to consider the things of God, to consider his gospel of redemptive grace. And so if we speak about God, let it be persuasively seeking to move them. Persuasion is not coercion. We're not forcing them. We're not bribing them, though I've tried that before. It doesn't work. But we want to move them by the way we paint a picture of who God is. So let's pray and ask God to give us some insight into how to do this well. 
Father, we want to paint a clear, persuasive picture of who you are. We believe that you are the most beautiful thing in all the cosmos because you created them. We believe that your gospel is the most beautiful picture of sacrifice, of grace, of mercy, and of love poured out upon all mankind. Help us to learn to speak about it from the heart, to move people to want to consider whether or not it's true. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we've got this task. How do we become people of persuasion, people who speak persuasively? And here's the thing, and I hope this comes out as you, as you hear this and as you practice this, is that whether or not people agree with you, when you speak in this way, I believe that people will want to talk to you. People want to talk to people who speak persuasively. Um, tonight's talk, you'll see, is, a, is, is one of the keys to that. Um, when I was a kid, when I was a kid, I was so creative. You say, Dave, I don't believe it. It's true. I was so creative. Me and my buddies used to get together, and we would, like, write movie scripts, and we would build movie sets, and oftentimes we'd blow up the movie sets, and we'd make these movies. And this was back, I mean, I'm 34 years old, almost, not yet, 34, this is a long time ago. I mean, we're talking VHS camcorder, okay, and you had to hook this thing up to your TV when you're trying to edit. Now it's like you can do it all from your phone. So we, we put some effort into this. I was really creative as a kid. I really was. <laughs> Now here's the deal. I don't know how creative I am anymore. As I've gotten older, it seems like I've put the creative side of my personality away in some regard. Why is that? Have you experienced that? When you think about your childhood, man, I was creative as a child. And now, I don't do that very often. I fear that cynicism sarcasm that often creeps into us as we grow older, as we become adults, has crushed part of that creativity in us. We've forgotten the joy of trying to be creative before we say, what's the point? I fear that specialization has caused this to happen as well. Specialization meaning I go to college and they tell me pick one thing, get really good at this one thing, and then spend your whole life perfecting this one thing. This is the enemy of creativity because we're told to just focus in. And if our focus is not in the creative arts, then oftentimes we don't exercise our creative muscles and so we lose it. So whether it's from cynicism or specialization or just growing old, it seems like creativity has been relegated to the edges of our life. I remember uh, some years ago when I was still working as an accountant. That's right, I was a CPA. That's right, yeah, big time CPA. Uh, Worked for a big time firm. And I remember I was home, because I was living in Dallas at the time, and I was home visiting my family, and I was sitting at the dinner table with my parents and my sister, 
And we began to talk. And I don't know if this ever comes up in your family. We started talking about, you know, the personalities of each other. And it came up, who's the creative one in the family? And everybody, everybody said, well, of course, Kaylee, my little sister, she's the creative one. And I said, excuse me? (laughs) And I began to make a case for myself, talking about my childhood, movies I'd created, things I'd done in high school. I think I'm the creative one. They were typecasting me because I was an accountant. But as I came up with all my examples, they were all from the past. So perhaps my sister is the creative one. So I left accounting and I started church just to prove that I'm the creative. No, that's not why we started this. Well, maybe this is part of your story that When you were a child, you were so creative. Here's the good news. I hope this comes out tonight. Your creativity is not a thing of the past. Your creativity is a part of your future. It's part of your present right now. And oftentimes that creativity will come out when we try to teach people and explain the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. He wants us to use our creativity. He's calling us all, not just the creatives in the room, every single one of us, the accountants, the engineers, to use our creativity. (laughs) Now, I'm sorry if that seemed like I was picking out accountants and engineers as the non-creatives, but there's just something to that. Okay. I found this out uh, around seven years ago after my sister passed away and I relearned how to use my creativity in speaking about God. And I want us all to relearn how to use our creativity when speaking of our Father, our Savior, and the Gospel. This is a true art. This is what will make our conversations better. It's what will make our conversations more persuasive. We have to learn to be creative, to reach a culture and a people who are oftentimes closed to these kinds of conversations. So, this is our second key to the art of persuasive conversation. It's the key of creativity. Now, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the very first page, Genesis chapter 1. There's Bibles in the seats in front of you, or you can pull it up on your phone. This is also written in your bulletin. And there's something significant that it's the very first page of the Bible. Is it not? Is the very first thing that you would write in your story not important? So we're going to read just the very beginning. And what we'll see is that God is the God of creativity. He's the God of imagination. So read with me Genesis 1. 1. In the beginning... That's the very beginning of everything. God created the heavens and the earth. He created. Simple as that. He's the author of all things. He's the author of creativity. Verse 2. The earth was without form and void. It was a blank canvas. And darkness was over the face of the deep. 
and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. That's so important. Remember that. The Spirit of God. You'll see Him often around the things of creativity. God started with a blank canvas. And what did He do to put creativity upon that canvas? Look at verse 3. And God said. He spoke. He spoke. The first act of creativity was God speaking. He said, let there be light. And there was light. The spoken word is powerful, and it still is. We'll see again as we go through this talk how powerful the word is. This conversation is words of creativity. Let there be light, and the light was good. God's delighted by his own creativity, and he's delighted when we act as he's designed us to act creatively. Which means what? We're created in the image of God. Genesis 2 and 3 will tell us that. God has created us to be his representatives to do the things that he does on the earth he's created. And so we are all, each one of us, is called to be an artist. Our own art in our own special way, but we're all called to be artists because we're created in the image of this creating God, this creative God, this artist God who put all of this and all of us together. C.S. Lewis says of God's creation of the world, he says this, in order that we finite, that means limited beings, may comprehend the emperor, and he's speaking of God, he translates his glory into multiple forms, into stars, woods, waters, beasts, and the bodies of man. And so the ultimate purpose of God's creativity is the translation of his glory for others to experience. This is exactly what we're supposed to do. Translate the glory of God so that others can see it. This is what the act of creation was. God didn't want to keep his glory to himself. He wanted to share it with us. Now, it's important to remember, of course, that creation applied to human authorship when we speak of God, when we translate his glory, is slightly different than God's creation. We are simply rearranging words and elements of his already creation to bring glory to him. Because we're not gods, we're representatives of God. That's important to remember. It's similar, but not exactly the same. But it remains that the second level creativity that we are responsible for is a general calling to all human beings, not just those of us that are creative or that the world would call creatives or artists, but every single one of us has our job to do to paint a picture of God. It's an act of painting. So, in, in, in relearning the ability to be creative for the gospel, 
It's good to look, though, at those of us who have a special gift of creativity, like the Janelles of the world, right? They have an ability to translate beauty that others might experience. So we want to look at and we want to appreciate artists and we want to ask them to help us become great artists ourselves. And so as I was searching, reading about uh, Christianity and art, I, f- I came across an article and, and read and saw the work of an artist by the name of uh, Linnea Gabriella Spranzi. Has anybody heard of her? No? Nope. Look her up. In fact, the icon on our podcast for this series is a piece of her art. I'm not sure if that's legal or what. Let me know if you're an artist and I shouldn't be doing that. I thought it was good for her. Just kind of, I mean, we've got a wide reach here, you know? It's good for her career. So I, uh, <laughs> I really like this piece of art. It moved me, and so uh, take a look at that and tell me if I should take it down. Okay, so, but these are the words that she used. So listen closely as I read to you. Uh, she's an award-winning painter, She leads an artist community called The Boiler Room, and she's had exhibitions all over the world from Brooklyn to China. Uh, And she wrote this little piece in this article called Why Creating is Like Faith. This is from, from the mouth of an artist. She says this, The way life behaves and the way plants grow are incredibly interesting to me. The way human beings behave and the possibility of healing is also inspiring to me. I am continually staggered by the ingenuity of God in the world around us. We have so much to draw on. The true artist displays to the world a manifestation of the inner meditations of their heart and mind. Being an artist is, in and of itself, an incredible parable for having faith. You're in this position of where you have to step into the unknown without hesitancy, with all of your resources and with every intention of seeing it through, and you know it may be disastrous. When I read this, I was like, this is what it feels like for me when I step into a big conversation. Sometimes I feel like disaster is on the other side, but by faith I step in. Then she says this about community. She says, community puts us in a place where we can hide our worst, or we, or sorry, where we can't hide our worst and our best. And so there's incredible opportunity for discipleship in community that is caring and healthy. An artist brings not only beauty and inspiration, but also powerful observational skills and, self, or, and spiritual awareness. We can become a source of joy, blessing, and the voice of God in other people's lives. This is what we're talking about. This is why we're called to have better conversations. That we might become, through our observation, observers of the world that God's created. That we are spiritually aware and then we move into the world and we share that with other people. We don't keep it to ourselves, but we share it with other people and we share it artfully. And and like a good artist, we seek that our art might move people. That's why we create art. To move people. So I thought it's important to, and I I would encourage you, there's many artists within our community, ask them to help you become a better artist when it comes to speaking about God and acting for God in your life. Now, um, as as we go here, let me just give you a quick reminder because I, I don't want this to get 
confusing. Um, when it comes to being creative, we have to keep this in mind. There are things that we hold with an open hand and there are things we hold with a closed hand. Which is to say there are things that we cannot be creative about and there are things that we can be creative about. There's an error, and I, I think it can be prevalent in our world today, within our churches today, to think that it's okay to become creative with the things of God's truth. We can sort of use our imagination and, and decide for ourselves what's true and what's not true. Be creative with the truth. Because, right, there's some things in the Christian faith that are hard to digest. So let's just be creative. That is not the kind of creativity that God wants. Remember, we are rearranging to second-level creativity of what God has already created, and he is the author of truth. We do not. That's a closed hand. We do not get to be creative with truth. But he calls us to be creative, to have an open hand with how we present that truth, how we reach that, uh, bring that truth to the people that we love, that we care about, that live in our city. We have an open hand with that. We, we want to be very creative. Does that make sense? There's grave danger in trying to be creative with both truth and presentation. Truth and explanation. That is not our prerogative. We do not have that okay from God. So, closed hand, open hand. Now, I'm going to give you five tips. Got to fly through these. Five tips to how to be more creative. Now, I'm not going to give you specific... Cre I'm not... I'm not I might give you an example here and there. I'm not going to just give you, say it this way, and that will be creative. Why am I not going to do that? Because the way I say something creatively should not be exactly the way you say it creatively. Because the, God is going to use me to speak to some people, and he's going to use you to speak to some people. So if, you just, if you're just a parrot and say exactly what I've said, you've blown the creativity uh, command of God. You're, you're not being creative. I want you to be creative. So I don't want you to get hung up on the way I describe things. I want you to think about it your own way, and you'll see why this is so important. And the first reason, and the first tip is this. We all have unique canvases, and you have to learn your canvas. We do not all have the same canvas. Here's what I mean by that. Some of us, our canvas is a law office. Others, our canvas is the classroom. For some of us, our campus is a construction site. Others, it's the home. For others, it's the lab. For others, it's the hospital. And for some of us, like me, it's the church. We all have different canvases, different places in which we're called to be creative. And not all canvases are the same. They have unique textures. There's unique limitations on the utensils that you're allowed to use based on your canvas. And so you have to learn what the canvas is, learn the unique textures, learn the utensils you're allowed to use, and then be as creative as humanly possible to try and paint a picture of God and the gospel on that canvas. And you might say, my canvas is incredibly hard. I have so many limitations, right? I mean, think of the difference between teaching in a public school and teaching in a private Christian school. Totally different canvases, totally different limitations, but both teachers are called to be light, to paint a picture of who God is. It's not easy, but you are the expert of your canvas. Each and every one of you is the expert of your own canvas, 
And you must look at your canvas, not begrudgingly, but excitedly, and say, I want to master this canvas and learn to paint the best possible picture. Some of you are like, man, it feels like I'm trying to paint on a wet window. Yeah, for some of you it is. But you've got to find a way to paint the best picture. And if your canvas is a wet window, it's okay if your artwork looks like a second grader. For you, that might be the most amazing piece of art that's ever been painted on that canvas. So don't compare yourself. It's not a competition. It's not an art competition. I'm not coming around saying, wow, that's a nice picture there. Leslie, oh, Ashley, this, you could have done a little bit better there. That's not how it works. You're responsible for your canvas and to do the very best job of painting a picture of God and the gospel using everything that you have, and sometimes that's only your action. You say, Dave, easy for you to say, you've got this amazing canvas, no limitations, beautiful texture. Let me tell you this. If, if you're thinking that in your head, let me tell you this. I'm incredibly jealous of you. I've been in other, I've, I've had other canvases, and, and so often I wish I could be back there, whether it's with my friends in high school or on a college campus or working at Deloitte. I am so jealous because you know what? The majority of the people that see the art that I paint already love and worship Jesus. You get to paint a picture for people that do not love and do not worship Jesus. You get all sorts of people that see your paintings and for most of them, it might be the first gospel art that they ever see. I'm so jealous of that. I miss that. Don't take that for granted. Thank God that he gives you an audience for your gospel art, an audience that might have never seen it. Think of how great that is. Because, see, you come in here, and you've seen a lot of gospel art, and your tendency is to judge my gospel art based on lots of other examples you have. You may say, I really like the way that art was done. For you, like I said, it might look like a second grader drew it, but that might be the best art anybody's ever seen. So love that. Embrace that. Celebrate that. Thank God for the canvas that he's given you. Tip number two. You have to practice speaking in different languages. What do I mean? I don't mean that y'all need to get some language learning software and learn how to speak Cantonese. I don't mean that. But in the 21st century, in a city like Seattle, there are many languages. We don't live in a Christian world anymore. We're post-Christian. And so there's all sorts of Christianese that we can say that nobody will understand. So you don't use that. You use their language. And the language might be business language. The language might, might be medical language. But you need to use the language that you know that God has prepared you, oftentimes through school, to learn how to speak their language. Does that make sense? So, um, I was in the business world, accounting. So I put some examples for me. How could I explain the gospel of Jesus Christ using, for instance, the language of double-entry accounting? Debits and credits. I actually think I could, I could teach the gospel pretty well through double-entry accounting. 
Some of you never took a business class, and you have no idea what I'm talking about, which is why there's other languages, the language of medicine. So speaking biologically, speaking of chemistry, speaking of procedures like transplants and chemotherapy, even amputation. I don't even know how to talk about this stuff. My wife comes home. She's a nurse. She talks with other medical people. It's literally like they're speaking another language. But she can go explain the gospel in a way that I can't using the language that others might understand. There's the language of art and design, how to understand beauty and the like. There's philosophy, education. There's so many different languages, right? And if we learn to speak of God and the gospel in those languages we can start to paint a creative picture of who God is in a language that people can understand, a language that doesn't necessarily use Christianese. Oz Guinness in his book says this, Due to the explosion of pluralism in the last 50 years, our world has grown dramatically more diverse And through the intensification of the cultural warring in many Western countries, our world has grown far more dismissive of our faith. In short, the public squares and many of our nations are more secular and uh, and private spheres are more diverse. We, therefore, have to speak many languages and not just Christian. And we have to be persuasive when we address minds and hearts that often listen to us with the default position of prejudice, scorn, impatience, and sometimes anger. We need to learn to speak their language. I think they'll listen longer if we're speaking in a language that they can understand. The Apostle Paul was no stranger to this. In 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23, this is written in your bulletin if you want to follow along with me. The Apostle Paul says this. For though I am free from all, which means he can do whatever he wants. He can speak in whatever language and terms he wants. Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessing. I love that. (laughs) That's one of my favorite Passages of Scripture. I become all things to all people that I, by all means, I might save some. If we were to put this in our sort of conversational language, we could say this. I speak the language of all people that by all means I might connect with some. Are you willing to do that? It takes hard work to translate the things of God, the things maybe that you've learned your whole life, and use the language of the people around you to present that. It's going to take some work. You're going to have to become an expert, but here's the great thing, and I've done this before. One time, I'll give an example. One time I wanted to use a great illustration from the medical field, 
and I was trying to come up with the right language, and I realized I'm going to botch this thing. And so I called my friend Chris Early, who's in med school. I said, give me some language. <laughs> and what's funny is he tried to explain it to me how, what, what, do you remember what it was, Chris? Well, yeah. And I couldn't even understand what he was saying. But I guarantee if he was saying that to a bunch of his medical friends, they would, it would click for them. Because I'm not called to be the, ang- uh, the, the expert in the language of medicine. I'm not called to preach the gospel necessarily to the medical world. Chris is. I believe that's your calling. So you have to become an expert in translating the things of the gospel into the language of medicine. We see this again and again. In the Apostle Paul's life, in Acts 17, I'll just read this for you, uh, this happens. In Acts 17, we have this great passage. The Apostle Paul is in Greece, and he's trying to tell people for the first time about Jesus, about his death and his resurrection. And it says that first, he went to the synagogue, which is where the Jews were. And in verse 1 to 3, chapter 17 of Acts, it says this, Paul was reasoning with the Jews from Scripture using their language, which means Hebrew. And then in that same chapter, Paul moves from the synagogue into the streets, which were full mainly of Greeks who had a different way of seeing the world. And what we see is that Paul will then use and quote, he will quote Greek philosophers and Greek poets in order to speak the language that people understand and then point them to Jesus. Basically saying, Jesus fulfills everything even your philosophers said must be true. But in order to do this, in order to be great translators, we must practice. We must practice doing this. I mean, literally sit in our living rooms, maybe it's with our spouse, maybe it's with a friend, and practice trying to translate the gospel into language that people can understand. You're not gonna get good at doing it unless you practice. Here's the motivation. God himself communicates with us in many languages. In many languages. In this book alone. You know, we have all types of language and communication styles that God will use. He uses narrative story. He uses poem. He uses song. He'll use love letters. He'll use legalese. He'll use familial letters. He'll use prophetic prose. He'll use metaphor and analogy. And he'll use symbolism. And he does it all out of love for us that we might see a picture of him and his glory more clearly, more fully, and be amazed by it. He wants to move us. That's why he uses whatever type of language he can to move us to start seeking after him. We need to do the same. And the great thing is, he didn't even stop at words. He kept going. He kept going. He didn't stop at words. And the incarnation of God the Son is perhaps the pinnacle or the, the lengths to which God would go to creatively communicate to us about who He is. John in his Gospel explains it this way. 
John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, God the Son. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that has been made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. He says, it's not enough just to use words. I'm going to move in. I'm going to come and live on their canvas. I'm going to speak human language. I'm going to walk through the human life. I'm going to face human temptation, all that they might have a chance to see the glory of God up close and personal. He put on flesh. And then we see that Jesus communicated in many ways. He used many forms of communication, and Jesus really was the master of creative communication. We saw that a little bit, didn't we, in our series on the parables. Jesus was the master of creative conversation when it came to talking, particularly about the kingdom of God. So we learned from him. And for us, too, we should seek to be creative, engaging all forms of conversation. Os Guinness says, says it this way, there's a time for stories and there's a time for rational arguments and the skill we need lies in knowing which to use and when. So we, too, we can't just tell stories. We also have to use rational arguments and we need to weave all of that together to paint a picture. Tip number three. Invoke your imagination. C.S. Lewis was the master of using the imagination to draw people into the story of God. Of course, you've probably heard of C.S. Lewis, the Chronicles of Narnia, and the list goes on. He had a good friend, too, named J.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings, and he, too, was a Christian, using the imagination and building a world of the imagination in order to point people to God and his gospel. And one of the things that they talk about when they say, why did they choose to create a world of the imagination in order to communicate? What they said was this. They said, oftentimes in our lives, because we're so familiar with our world, we'll tend to see something and not recognize it for what it actually is. But in the world of the imagination, if I take you to Middle Earth, for instance, or if I take you into the land of Narnia, when you see something, you tend to recognize it for what it is. And one of the things they said was that it's hard for us in our own world even to recognize evil when we see it, like absolute evil. But if you read the Chronicles of Narnia or you read the Lord of the Rings, when you see evil, you have no problem affirming that that is absolute evil, not relative evil, that is evil. And they did this in order that we might sort of escape the justifications that we tend to make in our own world and see things as they really are, which is that there is such thing as absolute good and absolute evil, absolute right and absolute wrong, which was something that they and we wrestle with, isn't it? Is there such thing as objective evil, objective right and wrong? And if there is, then there must be an author that defines the boundaries. We call him God. So we need to learn to use the imagination. 
We might tell great stories ourselves, imaginative stories, in order to explain to somebody the gospel. This one is, again, challenging, but I think each of us can do it. Each of us can do it. And our hope is, as Peter Berger, philosopher, says, is to create in people triggers of the transcendent. Triggers of the transcendent. So we want to point people to the transcendent, and oftentimes the world of the imagination is the best way to do that. Okay. Tip number four. Love the creativity of your own story. You might be to the point now where you're like, man, I have to be like C.S. Lewis or Tolkien. This is tough. I don't know if I can do that. Here's the great thing. Your story is chocked full of creativity because God is writing a story through you and he's a God of creativity. And so you just need to tap into your own story and learn to look closely and pull out all the creativity. You say, man, I got a pretty boring story. Maybe I grew up in the church and can't even really remember a time that I wasn't a Christian. You're not looking close enough. There is so much creativity if you just look a little bit closer. Yeah, your life might not look like an epic blockbuster, but epic blockbusters are not the best stories. The best stories, right, the ones that win Academy Awards are these nuanced, very personal stories that look deep within the human psyche. And what you'll find if you look close enough at your own story is that there's so much creativity authored by God in your story. So learn to love your story. Learn to mine it for the creativity of God within it. Tip number five. Use the art of surprise. The art of surprise. Surprise is a great, it's a great part of the human experience, is it not? Do you love or do you hate to be surprised? Let's get a raise of hands. Who would love it if they had a surprise birthday party? Raise your hand if you would love to have a surprise birthday party. Okay, I'm writing this down. I'm guessing the rest of you would hate it. (laughs) Probably the people that would hate it are the ones (laughs) that actually love surprise the most because it really surprises them to the point where they get pissed (laughs) that they didn't know, you know? (laughs) Like I was not happy that I got surprised with a birthday song here, okay? Because I probably deep down get really, I mean, I, I love to be in control. So the art of surprise is important. Uh, Oz Guinness in his book, uh, Fool's Talk, he tells a story of a really controversial uh, novelist named Norman Mailer. And Norman Mailer was something of a chauvinist pig. In fact, that's what he called himself. And he was pretty outspoken about it, and he was pretty outspoken about his critique of the feminist movement. And in the book, 
here's the deal. Norman Mailer is not a good guy. In fact, he's a, as big of a critic of Christianity as he is of the feminist movement. So I'm not going to tell this story because I think you should be like Norman Mailer, but he used surprise in one story in a way that I, I think teaches us the point of how powerful surprise can be. And in his book, Os Guinness tells the story of Norman Mailer gets invited to UC Berkeley to give a lecture, and the feminist uh, movement was strong. This is like in the 1960s, was strong uh, at Berkeley. And they rallied up the people and they were going to protest Mailer. And so they basically bought as many tickets as they could to this lecture and they filled the room uh, in which he was speaking. And their plan was basically to be so disruptive that he could not present uh, what he wanted to present. And <laughs> Uh, Norman Mailer gets up on stage and somebody has warned him that this is happening, that there's this, uh, there's this movement uh, going on. And, and so he gets up on stage and, and, and the very first thing that he says is, he says, um, I've heard that there's many of you that don't like me very much. So I'm just going to go ahead and let you get it out. So if you want, right now is the time to hiss. And on cue, the place erupts with catcalls and hissing and booing and coyote whistles. I don't know, all sorts of stuff. Is that a thing? I don't know. And it goes on for minutes and minutes. But eventually, it died down. And he waited patiently for it to die down. Again, I'm not on his side, but he uses the art of surprise well. And it finally dies down, and he walks back in front of the microphone, and he says, obedient little women, aren't you? And that's what happened. Everybody sort of stopped. They were taken back. They were surprised. And you know what? He gained their attention for the rest of his lecture. Now Jesus, of course, loved women. And Jesus wanted women at his lectures and he wanted, he loved them more than anything. So again, we don't like Norman Mailer, but what we can learn from him is that particularly when people are predisposed to reject what we have to say, we need to learn to communicate despite them. And oftentimes, surprise can be the best way to earn their attention. This is one of the forms of creative communication. In every era and every age, surprise. Because our audience tends to be predisposed to rejecting when we start to talk about God. So how might we use surprise to break through the walls that they put up? You've got to be creative about this. You've got to think through this. What might surprise people? Now here's the great thing. Actually, let me say this. Uh, Os Guinness sort of puts this well. He says, the challenge is to restate, especially in our 
uh, Christian culture, meaning most people think that they've heard the gospel and understand the gospel and understand Christianity. So he says this, the challenge is to restate something so familiar that people know it so well that they do not know it. Yet at the same time, convince them, or at the same time, they're convinced that they're tired of it. That's our challenge. That's our challenge in this culture. So let me, let me, uh, let me say this. The gospel of Jesus Christ, I believe, is the pinnacle of God's creativity. The incarnation of God is God's creativity to paint his picture of love on the canvas of our world. Jesus is the word of God come into human language in a human form that we might understand. He became human through the language of the flesh. The gospel could only have come from the imagination of the creator of all things. He is the truly imaginative one to even think that the gospel, to send his son into the earth, to live a life and to die and to rise, that's true imagination. And he paints a picture of his grace and his love and his judgment in a very personal story, doesn't he? The personal story of his son. And then perhaps the most persuasive part, the most creative part of the gospel is this last element. The gospel is truly surprising, is it not? It truly catches you off guard. The gospel is God's big surprise. It should surprise you almost every time you hear it because it is so unlike every other human religion. Because every other religion, every inclination of the natural man, the natural woman, is to instinctively attempt to make ourselves good enough to reach God, good enough to earn His favor, good enough, just good enough that we might enter into His presence. That's the natural inclination of human religion. Until we hear the gospel, and it's totally different. And it should surprise us Wait, what, wait, what'd you say? You said there's nothing I can do to reach God? That he's done it all? That Jesus lived the life I should have lived? That he died the death I should have died? And he rose again? What? That is surprising to me that I have nothing to do with my own salvation. That I'm made worthy through the work of God in Jesus Christ. I wasn't expecting you to say that. That caught me off guard. How, how can that be? I think lots of times people aren't surprised by the gospel because maybe we're not articulating it well. No, it has nothing to do with you. I'm not telling you to be a better person. That's not what saves you. That's surprising. That's a paradigm shift. And when we look at the Bible, when we, when we read about conversion and repentance, the word that's used, the Greek word that's used, literally means to see afterwards. So when we repent, when we turn, it's like we're seeing after the fact. We're looking back on the way we used to see the world, and it surprises us. I never saw that coming, is what we often say. 
once we've seen and heard the gospel. We look back and we say, I totally thought about God the wrong way. I've been converted. I've had my paradigm totally shifted by the gospel and the work of God through the Spirit in my life. The gospel is the most surprising thing in our world, and it still is, and it always will be if we paint a picture successfully. We needed to be surprised by the gospel of grace. We needed to be woken up by our false ways of seeing God, of false ways of seeing religion, false ways of seeing Jesus. We needed to be woken up. We needed a bucket of ice thrown on us. Praise God if that's happened to you. Praise God every time you're surprised by the gospel. I'm surprised by it almost daily. So learn to trust the gospel, learn to present it well, learn to be creative, learn to tap into that creativity that God has given you. Learn to surprise people with the gospel and know that the gospel itself is pregnant with all these things. Know that Know that the gospel is the pinnacle of God's creativity and it's the power to save. So here's my charge. Step into the surprise. Step into the creativity. Step into the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you do this through the power of the Spirit. Because again and again, you see it in the Old Testament and the New Testament, when people of God are creative, it's said that the Spirit of God was working in them. So you've got to be asking the Spirit of God to come alive in you, to fill you up that you might become the most creative artists for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the great creator that you have given us your power of creativity, that you've made us as human beings in your image, full of life and full of creative potential. And we pray that we would not use this only for ourselves, only for our own glory, but first and foremost for your glory, to paint a picture of your beauty, of your wonder, of your grace and mercy for the world to see. Help us to have better conversations, to speak better of you every day from this day until the day we see you again. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.